Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. Today I'm talking with Bud Titlow, co-author of Coming Full Circle, a sweeping saga of conservation stewardship across America. The story blends historical facts into an entertaining tale that follows a multi-generational family across America and back, shining a light on the origins of our current conservation crises, climate change, and biodiversity loss. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on Bud Titlow and his co-author, Mariah Tinger. For the past 50 years, professional ecologist and conservationist Bud Titlow has used his pen and camera to capture the awe and wonders of our natural world. His goal has always been to inspire others to both appreciate and enjoy what he sees. Now he has one main question. Can we save humankind's place within nature's beauty before it's too late? Bud's two latest books are dedicated to answering this perplexing dilemma, and you can learn more about Bud and all of his work on his website, budtitlow.com. Mariah Tinger is an author and educator teaching sustainability at Boston University's Questrom School of Business. Additionally, she is pursuing her Ph.D. in climate communication at Otago University and applying her knowledge as a co-host on the podcast, The Climate Minute. When she's not chasing chickens or her children in her Massachusetts home, she is dreaming of new ways to tell the climate story. You can learn more about Mariah and her work on her website, mariahtinger.com. Well, hi, Bud. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hi, Sherry. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about my book. As an environmentalist and conservationist and photographer, what made you actually sit down and write a book? Well, I've been a professional environmental scientist and uh, conservationist since 1973 when I got my master's degree from Virginia Tech and Wildlife Ecology. And my dad was a newspaper man, and he knew he wanted to be a newspaper man from the time he was seven when he got his first little toy printing press. And he ran off to University of Missouri. He ran away from home to go to University of Missouri so he could go to their J school. That's how dedicated he was to being a newspaper man, and that was his career. So I think, although I didn't want to follow in his footsteps, he, was, uh, he owned and uh, ran a, a weekly newspaper in the, up in the mountains of Virginia, and he took all his time and he was never around. He wasn't an absentia father. He really did a lot to try to interact with us, Mm -hmm. but it just took so much of his time and I didn't see that as a career for myself at the time. However, because of that uh, emphasis from him, I always say, well, writing has always been in my blood. So even though I had jobs with environmental consulting firms and with the federal government and quite a few jobs that paid a reasonable amount of money to put bread on the table, that did not give me a lot of career satisfaction. So I used uh, side jobs, writing as a stringer initially for Colorado Homes and Lifestyles magazine, mm. and also for Rotogravure, Sunday Magazine, and the Denver Post. And marketing and selling a lot of freelance articles and photos on the side didn't make a whole lot of money, but that's where I drive my personal satisfaction. And really, my interest in writing kind of blossomed from there. And to date, I think I've published five books and about 500 uh, magazine and newspaper photo essays and 
I estimate 5,000 photos uh, in various and sundry places. Wow. So it just came naturally, really, as far as my interest in writing. And I'm not a big time talker, <laughs> but I do love to sit down and just express my feelings with the written word. And that's kind of where my heart has always been in terms of career. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that story. So yeah, it's definitely in your blood. <laughs> so what is your book coming full circle about? It is about a multi-generational family. And it's really a sequel to a nonfiction book, Mariah Tinger. My daughter and I wrote about five years ago. Mm. What we decided to do was tell the story, same story that we did in Protecting the Planet, but put it into a, an eco-novel format to make it more interesting and more exciting and more nuanced and overall make it a better read because Protecting the Planet was kind of dry. It had a lot of really good information in it. And we interviewed quite a few pretty well-known people and put forward the message about solving climate crisis and solving biodiversity loss. And what we feel like was a very good fashion, but we just wanted to try something different to get the same message across and make it something that people could relate to. So the coming full circles about a multi-generational family starting in colonial days in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia that moved progressively through four, five, six generations across the West, like the standard uh, frontier wagon trains, mm -hmm. and ended up in uh, California gold rush days with a whole bunch of things intervening in between. They, the first generation that left Virginia settled in, in Missouri, and then the group of the young boys left Missouri and then went looking for riches in the California gold fields. And, and we have a lot of different little vignettes going on in between the, with the story about getting uh, trapped in a snow cave and getting attacked by bandits in the Badlands and ending up having to be rescued by Shawnee Native Americans uh, in the mountains when they try to cross the Rockies and having a frontier days showdown with a bunch of bad smelling and <laughs> on the edges trappers in uh, Fort Laramie in Wyoming. So it has a lot of little vignettes that I think really make it interesting. And then I throw in a lot of natural history that the emphasis with the leaders of the wagon train, they had to hunt. I mean, that was what you did in order to make it across the country. You had to have food. So they were hunters. Right. But they also loved the land. They loved the natural resources that the leaders did. And that's what they preached to the men that were along on the wagon train. And they, they taught love of the land and to be uh, receptive to the idea that we are just one species on Earth. And we need to understand that we have to try to uh, inculcate what we are doing on Earth with all the other species that we share the planet with, mm -hmm. instead of just, uh, having dominance over those species and using them for our own benefits that we are, as the intelligent, quote unquote, species, <laughs> have an obligation to live with those species and to enhance their place on the Earth instead of trying to dominate them all the time and just um, use them up if we have to, which is what happens a lot with the uh, extinction process. But with just uh, an idea that the multi-generational family moved across the country, they ended up in California, then for a reason of having a, an episode with trappers, uh, actually, I wouldn't even call them trappers, they were just ne'er-do-well people that were killing wildlife right and left. Mm. The lead guy at the time that ended up in California uh, decided that he had to do something about that, so he took over trappers and trapped them, and 
made them quit doing what they were doing, but it, they came back and retaliated against him and his family. So he moved the family to Key West, Florida, and they took a steamship and train because the Panama Canal wasn't in place yet. So they took a series of ships and, and trains to get to Key West. And then he had two kids and they became activists and they became very active in what was going on in Florida, which was a travesty of major bad results especially in the first half of the 20th century. If you know the history of Florida, you know that Mr. Disney didn't do anybody any favors, not in the state of Florida anyway. He filled mm. up three million acres of wetlands. So I had a lot of vignettes about what happened with them in Florida. And then the, the family moved up to Boston and became activists in Boston. And there's an intervention in Virginia uh, as they're moving to Boston and, and meeting more people and getting married and having their own children. So it's it's like, five, I guess, five or six total generations. Wow, that's uh, a lot. Yeah, that's that covers yeah. quite a bit of ground. The book's probably too long. I don't know. It's, <laughs> about, uh, it's at least uh, 600 pages, depending on what format you're looking at. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize it was that long. But you know what? Um, I love the idea that you did tell the story as a fictional tale because... I feel like there are a number of books on the market about the environment and threats to our planet and what your book is about, basically. And But I think telling it as a tale, you like you mentioned, you can interweave fact and fiction. And I think it's a genius way to capture more people's attention because not everyone wants to read a nonfiction, you know, accounting like that. So, No, you're exactly right, Sherry. I mean, you got the nail on the head with that. It just dawned on me that Protecting the Planet may be sold a thousand copies. I don't know. It's still for sale, but you're right. I mean, it was just too dry. And quite frankly, we got so much else going on that's like there are imminent threats, like a nuclear holocaust for mm-hmm. one right mm-hmm. now, uh, what, 100 seconds away from the, uh, the doomsday clock, mm. uh, that sort of thing. So people are kind of reticent about even thinking about it or much less wanting to do something about something that's more long-term like climate change and uh, biodiversity loss and the extinction process. Even though most people realize that it's happening and admit that it's a problem, but they say, well, yeah, but that's way off in the future, so we don't have to worry about it now. Well, as you probably know, uh, in truth, the climate crisis is very well underway. I mean, just looking at the severity of the storms, and droughts and wildfires that we have all over the world are just getting more and more severe. And look what's going on in California right now. We've had never had torrential rains like we're having for the last three weeks uh, with mudslides and roads washing away. But it's not imminent. Mm-hmm. And I, that's the problem with people wanting to say, well, we're concerned, but we really don't want to spend our time trying to figure out how to fix it because we've got so much other stuff to worry about right now. And, you know, all the, uh, problems with race, all the indigenous problems that are going on all, all over the world. I mean, those things are extremely important, and they are more timely than climate crisis and biodiversity loss. I mean, I admit that. So, But I still just want to try to get people engaged and entertained and thinking about the overall process and figuring out how we can maybe do something to at least slow climate change and biodiversity loss down and take control of it, not right away, but maybe within a 10-year time frame. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, that's really what all the experts are saying. That's how much time we got left, 10 years. Really? 
and then the climate crisis is not going to be able to be fixed. We don't do something to get control of it within the next 10 years. And so I know everyone contributes to that, but what or who is the biggest danger to the planet at this point? Uh, as far as existential threats, from my perspective, from an environmental standpoint, mm-hmm. it's got to be the climate crisis. And, yeah. and from so many different standpoints, as far as impacting large chunks of our worldwide population along coastlines, the possibility of entire cities being swallowed up by a sea level rise. Yeah. I mean, if you want to get a real analysis that kind of blends um, military with the environmental, many of our military bases are set along coastlines in this country, and many of them are having major problems with being able to maintain their facilities. Wow. I mean, the military will come out and tell you, yeah, sea level rise is a huge problem for us. We're not sure what to do about it. Yeah. Not that it's not as important as some of the other issues in the world today, but it is. I feel like the problem is we keep saying, oh, that's not going to affect me and my generation, but we've got to think past our generation. And at this point, I feel like everybody needs to be doing something, but I don't know what that is. How can one person make a difference? How can corporations make a difference? You know, I mean, are we just headed for disaster or are there some steps that we can take? Well, that's one thing that we do in the end of both of our books, Taking the Planet, which is nonfiction, we provide a, an array of solutions mm. that could be looked at and implemented. I don't want to, want, want to give away, you're not supposed to tell the end of the story of a fiction book, right? Right. Uh, before people read it. But just the end of the book presents a, a very optimistic scenario about how we can resolve the climate crisis and the biodiversity loss crisis within the next decade. And I I describe, again, sticking with the uh, multi-generational family, I stick with the twin women who at the end of the book are the heroes and they come up with ways that uh, the climate crisis and uh, biodiversity loss can be solved. Okay. Not that difficult a process. It's just a matter of pushing our legislators, both local, federal, and state, to do the right thing. Mm. And the right thing, the right thing is to get the uh, fossil fuel industry out of everybody's pockets. I mm. mean, that's the first thing we have to do is, and, and they know that their time is limited. They know they're gonna have to switch to renewables. Yeah. Uh, just a matter of putting, uh, getting some Congress people who are willing to take them on and make the changes to renewables right now instead of pushing it off into the future. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm interested in your multi-generational family. Were they based on people in history, or did you totally make up this this family? Well, it's a combination. I grew up in the mountains of Virginia, so the start of the family in Virginia mountains kind of ties back to what I experienced uh, growing up, even though this is 200 years prior to when I lived there. I mean, it was as far as the settlers, uh, the colonists, it started off in uh, 1820. Mm. I've lived in about five or six places. I've lived all over the country. Uh, so I've experienced different things in different parts of the country. I've worked in Denver, Boston, North Carolina, Florida, and now uh, San Diego. So a lot of the experiences are based on things that I learned when I was a field naturalist uh, and biologist, uh, things I experienced during those times, things that I heard about, books that I've read. About. So it's kind of a blend of 
historic facts and personal experiences, and then embellished with fictional things that did not happen to me, but that things that I know did happen during colonial days uh, that made for interesting vignettes that I put into the story, like the uh, Frontier Days fiasco or romp that they had at uh, Fort Laramie. Mm. Kinds of things happened uh, back in the uh, Frontier Days because the trappers all came into a fort uh, during the winter, and when they came in, everything got rowdy and crazy, and I think I got that from Dances with the Wolves. Uh, so I just kind of used a combination of things that I knew and, and, and stories that I wanted to enhance my personal experience. Right, uh, right. So what was it like for you to write fiction for the first time? It had to be a different experience for you. You know, nonfiction is it's based on facts. It's pretty straightforward. What was it like integrating that creative element into your work this time around? You know what, Sherry? I never thought I'd be a fiction writer. <laughs> In fact, I hadn't, until I wrote Coming Full Circle, uh, I hadn't written any fiction. All my photo essays were all, you know, uh, natural history, real, uh, nonfiction. Everything I'd done up to this point. But tell you the long-term story of Coming Full Circle, I started writing that 20 years ago. And I just sat down one time and I came up with the story of, I don't know whether you read the first chapters, but about the the guy who was a uh, trapper living in the mountains of Virginia and fighting off a grizzly bear that came into his campsite uh, by throwing pine cones at his nose, getting to back away from the tree that he was hung up in with the grizzly bear waiting at the bottom. So that was the first thing that came to my mind, and I wrote that down. And I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting story. Uh, And it just went on from there. I I would write it and maybe sit down and write for four or five days in a row and then not write anything for a month or two. And then I'd have more time to write, and I'd sit down and write some more. So it just kept developing and developing. And then uh, over a span of about the last three years, I wrote the majority of the book. But it, it's not something that I ever considered myself that I would be a fiction writer. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, my wife, Debbie, she's completely creative-minded, whereas I'm kind of, what is the left side, right side? I'm whatever the left, the non-creative. <laughs> I'm the non-creative part. You know, she can sit down and just write stories about anything she wants to. Oh, wow. Uh, anyway, after I got into it, I enjoyed it. And I think it's an interesting read. I, I think people, if I can get people to read it, I think they'll, they'll enjoy it. I, I <laughs> think it's good. I mean, but it's not something I consider myself to be a fiction writer at first. Now I'm kind of concentrating on writing blogs about the books that I've published before coming full circle. Uh-huh. So I'm kind of, that's, of course, that, that's all nonfiction. Yeah, I've written a hundred blogs over the past two years. Oh wow, wow, that's great! Blog posts through um, WordPress. So, yeah. what kind of feedback have you received on your story so far from people? Well, uh, I haven't really gotten a lot of reviews just from readers, but I've gotten quite a few reviews from like Kirkus reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, that CFC is an adventurous, passionate historical novel about an eco-friendly balance between humans and nature. I thought that was really a good good sentence yeah uh, literary titan gave me a book award and they said you can now call yourself an award-winning author oh fantastic we've taken them up on that and they wrote it's an, an impassioned and edifying book a compelling story about conservationism for nature lovers mm. so i've gotten five or six reviews that are uh i call four or five star reviews yeah nice nice 
Now, you wrote Coming Full Circle with your daughter, Mariah Tinger. Yes. Okay, from what you've said, I'm gathered this is not your first collaboration. So, But what was it like bringing this story, I guess, full circle? <laughs> well, as I said, I wrote this over 20 years, so I didn't really get her involved too much until the last few years. She's an environmental communicator. She's an environmental scientist like I have been for my career. Mm-hmm. Um but she kind of put the emphasis on indigenous people and, and I, I corrected a lot of the narrative that I had that was involved with Native Americans and fleshed out the fact that the indigenous people have always been, you know, especially with regard to environmental issues, gotten the short end of the straw. Not only did we push them off their native lands and take away their culture and a lot of times wipe out their villages. Mm. I want to say we, I mean the white colonists that came from Europe. Right, uh, right. So she kind of put that emphasis on the book. Uh, so it became a three-part uh, emphasis of climate crisis and biodiversity loss and indigenous peoples having respect for and understanding that the indigenous people actually live in harmony with the land like we should be doing now. And even though we're getting further and further away from the process or how the indigenous people live, uh, we need to go back to that. So she pushed that aspect of it. But she also did a lot of work with the climate crisis. She did a lot of work editing and embellishing mm-hmm. uh, the text. I love that. It's nice that she was able to bring that authenticity to the indigenous voice. I love that you were able to come together and, and put out a story like this. I, I feel like that's really special. Yes, exactly. Uh, again, you have the nail on the head. That's exactly her involvement and her input. She is very astute and just about everything she suggests or provides <laughs> I immediately uh, insert into the you know, whatever uh, section of the book we're working on. <laughs> She's so adept at uh, providing comments. Nice. Yeah, nice. So if there's one thing you hope readers take away from reading Coming Full Circle, what would you say that is? A couple of things, Sherry, if I may, is that we need to understand, and these are kind of really related. We uh, We need to understand that our role uh, as the intelligent species on Earth is to learn how to not dominate other species or not put ourselves above other species, but to live in harmony with other species and be caretakers for other species and their ecosystems. As E.O. Wilson, who was one of our major heroes, he was a Harvard professor, he just passed away last year, Mm. but he wrote a book called Half Earth and his belief in that book that he's been pushing for a long time is that every species on earth has the potential to be very valuable in some fashion. That every species on earth has value and should be uh, protected and respected as such. Then the second factor is just, uh, and it kind of all ties together, but uh, to do more to restore the prestige and the lifestyle and culture as much as we can with indigenous populations, both uh, in this country and throughout the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, but is there anything else you wanted to add for our listeners today? Well, one thing I would like to emphasize, Sherry, if I can, is just that I would really, Mariah and I would really like to know what people think about what we are saying and how we are saying it and the stories we present and uh, any opinions that anybody has about coming full circle, we'd love to get some feedback uh, on the book. We'd love to have people tell us what they think about the book, bad, good, indifferent, whatever they think. That's what we need to know, like to know, so we know whether our message is actually getting out there or not. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I'd just like to add that, you know, if you're going to leave a comment on Amazon, it doesn't have to be an elaborate review. It can be one or two words or one or two sentences. You know, just any kind of feedback is much appreciated. Yes, exactly. That's what we, uh, we'd like to know, mainly because our emphasis is not really on selling books or making money, but just trying to get our message across. And are we being successful at that or do we need to shift gears or what do we need to do to, to help uh, put our message out? Right. Well, Bud, thank you so much for joining me today. It, it was really a pleasure uh, getting to work with you over these last few weeks as we have and learning more about you and your work. Thank you so much, Sherry. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Bud Titlow, co-author of Coming Full Circle, a sweeping saga of conservation stewardship across America. You can learn more about Bud and his work at budtitlow.com. And be sure and check out our other interviews on InsideScoopLive.com.